as you know, we're doing this series called Getting to Know Jesus. And I thought I'd just start this morning, um, some people have asked me, and I thought I would just re- kind of reply, why do, why do we preach expositionally in this church? Why, do we, why have we, over the last three or four years, been preaching expositionally, preaching through the Scripture, preaching through books of the Bible? And I want to just answer that quickly before I, before I preach this morning. But the main reason is because I think it's, um, it's, one of, it's the, the first sign of a healthy church for me. <laughs> it's expositional preaching, along with a biblical understanding of the Scripture, and thirdly, an understanding of the Gospel. Those three things are, for me, the first three signs that the church is coming into a healthy place. Why do I say that? Because expositional preaching helps us to understand the whole of the Scripture. If you preach topically, it means what happens is the preacher chooses his favorite subject and he finds a whole lot of scriptures to to support what he wants to say and he comes prepared with a certain thing and he does that. So it could be prayer or it could be healing or it could be whatever. And those are not bad things, but what expositional preaching helps you to do is that you are forced to confront a whole lot of things that the Bible teaches And you have to start understanding them. And I believe over a period of time, it's the thing that brings health to a church, is that we start to understand the whole counsel of God, all of the Scripture. And what what does it mean? That's why we preach expositionally. That's why we've given ourselves to preaching expositionally, so that you can start to have a whole Bible theology, and that you can start to identify the message of the Gospel for yourself. And remember I said this before, so that if someone comes to you with another Gospel you're able to say, that's not the gospel. We want you, we want you to able, be able to understand the message of the gospel that you can taste when you are presented with something that is not the gospel. Are you with me? And alongside that is the presence of God. Do you remember we've talked about this before? Word and the Spirit. That's why we love to worship. That's why we love to just... Uh, have time where we can worship God. Why? Because there's something that happens to us also in the presence of God. It's the Word, and it's the Spirit, and we want to see the prophetic flow, and we want to see healing, and we want to see signs and wonders. Why? Because God demonstrates His kingdom by power, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the day in the life of Jesus' ministry. What did, what did the day in the life of Jesus look like? Well, this is a little snapshot here in Mark. And it's a delightful thing to have a look at this morning. His authority and how that authority flowed through his life and it changed everyone that he came into contact with. And that's the gospel, the results of the gospel. Uh, Paul says, when you preach the gospel, these si- that Jesus says, these signs will follow. Is that not true? If we preach the gospel, we should see people being born again and signs and wonders and marriages being restored and prayers being answered when we see the kingdom come. Amen. And that's uh, just for... Hope answers some of the questions that I've been asked. And if you have any other questions, please come and uh, I'll answer them if I can. But last week, uh, just to refresh your memory, we had a look at the calling of the first disciples in Mark chapter 1. And um, Jesus had this instruction, this call to these friends, these first friends that he chose, to come and help him to become fishers of men. And I asked you to notice four things, and they were these. First, the kind of men that he called. And I said to you that they were simple men. They were not uh, uh, intellectual men of the day. They were simple men. And then uh, they were fishermen. And I said to you that as the disciples were added to, God added other kinds of people. So he added a tax collector, an educated man. He added a doctor, Luke, 
But initially, the band of brothers that he got together were a little bunch of men that were his friends, and they were simple fishermen. And he called them to himself. They got to know him. And as they got to know him, they became his disciples. All right? So I said to you, the message of Jesus always starts in our hearts first. It doesn't start necessarily in our minds. It starts in our hearts as we connect with the person of Jesus. I said to you, secondly, to notice what they were doing. They were just doing their day job. They weren't... uh, doing anything extraordinary. And I pointed you to the Old Testament where people like Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah, all these people that were called by God, were called by God when they were doing their day job, just doing what they normally do, serving in the pub, uh, working with IT, teaching, uh, student, whatever. Whatever your job is, God can call you in your day job. He can speak to you, wants to speak to you doing your day job. There are people that he wants you to reach out to. And then I said, thirdly, to notice how he called them. He called them with an instruction. He simply said, follow me. He didn't debate with them. (laughs) He didn't kind of try and convince them that they needed to follow him. He simply said, follow me. And I said to you that I believe that was because of a period of time they'd already seen Jesus minister. They knew who he was. They had heard him preach. And they were so drawn to him that they couldn't help themselves but follow him. And so when the instruction comes, they lay down everything This total obedience, they lay down everything and they join and follow this man, Jesus. And he calls them, lastly, I said, he didn't call them to apathy. He didn't call them to inactivity. He didn't call them just because they were now walking with Jesus to kind of clutch out and hang around with the disciples. He called them to a task which was to be fishers of men. And remember, I connected that with the Old Testament, where that phrase is used in the Old Testament in Jeremiah and Amos, and it's used by as God is the fisher of men, rescuing people from destruction. That's the context. And so when Jesus says that, it's not just like a clever wordplay because they're fishermen. He's actually reminding them of what they are called to with him to rescue people out of darkness into light, to take people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And they're saying, that's the task I'm calling you to, to help me, to co-labor with me, to be a fisher of men. I said to you that all of us, primarily, before we are anything else, we are fishers of men. Before we, we are sons of God, that's our identity. But in terms of what we do, before we are anything else, deacons or elders or anything else, we are fishers of men. That's what we are called to be. And so I say, I lastly, I finished off and said then, well, how should we fish? And remember, I used the fishing analogy that that fishermen are extraordinarily patient. They fish on top of the water, under the water, on paddle skis, from the shore. They fish with nets. They fish, they're kind of crazy people, fishermen. And I encourage you, and I say, let's never, ever get into this thing of that people, if they don't fish like us, they're not doing the right thing, and they're not fishing for the right people, and, and we get all this kind of nonsense in the church. No, we applaud anyone who fishes. And if you fish with a net, I say, hallelujah. If you fish with a rod, I say, hallelujah. If your method is different from mine, I say, hallelujah. What we're trying to do is catch fish, and we need to be encouraging each other with great patience and faith and perseverance, knowing that we will see some fish caught. Amen. And that's what we want to give ourselves to as the church community. Every one of us fishing with all of our might, whatever skill we have. And I also said to you that some people are just good fishermen, aren't they? Uh, fish with my mates, like I said, and you throw your line into the same place of the ocean with the same bait, and they catch a fish, and I didn't catch a fish. Why is that? They're just a better fisherman than me. It's the grace of God. And so we rest in these things. We don't get competitive. We just rest in these things. And so I want to have a look at you with you today. 
And I've called this a day in the life of Jesus, and it's Mark chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 21 to 28. And it simply says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Notice, whenever you see Jesus, the first thing Jesus did was to go into the synagogue, and he was a teacher before he was anything else. He came to instruct people about the new kingdom that was coming. And the signs and wonders that flowed out of his life were a demonstration of what he had come preaching from Galilee. Remember, he had come preaching from Galilee, repent and believe, for the kingdom is near. And actually what he was saying through his life is, the kingdom is right in front of you. It's staring you in the face. I am the king. Can you perceive that I am the king? And if you can't see that I'm a king, the king, let me show you through signs and wonders and miracles. Yeah? And so he demonstrated the fact that the kingdom had come and he was the king through how he lived and he ministered. And it says they were astonished at his teaching. We're going to look at that today. For he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, remember I said to you the language of Mark? Immediately, immediately, immediately. He's telling the story. Immediately, there was in their synagogue, in the synagogue, a demonized man in their church meeting. Don't you find that extraordinary? In the synagogue is a demonized man, and he says, a man with unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So he's called these guys to be his disciples. And it says, immediately Simon, Andrew, James, and John, the four guys that he called, they go with him into the synagogue in Capernaum. And so all of this action that unfolds that we're going to talk about today is the one day of ministry in Jesus' life, all right? All these stories we're going to look at this morning. And Capernaum is one of the only places that Mark mentions as a site, a center for Jesus' uh, preaching and healing ministry. And it was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And so we have this description of this, this ministry day for Jesus. And... Uh, Starts with him preaching in the synagogue and the uh, amazing results out of this preaching that he does at the synagogue. And we never told what he preaches, but we, the, the, this passage actually highlights a couple of things. And the first thing that it highlights is the authority of Jesus. That's what I'd like to look at first, the authority of Jesus. Isn't it amazing that Jesus was never someone that um, made any great claims for himself? He never had any social standing or background that uh, gave him any special standing in the community. When you read about Jesus in the Scripture, he's simply described as Jesus, which comes from Joshua. It it's a, was a common name, Jewish name. Ordinary Jewish name, simply described as Jesus. He didn't call himself Jesus the teacher, Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the politician. He is simply Jesus. That's how his disciples knew him. Why does, he, why, why does the Scripture record him like that? Well, simply because I believe God wants us to see Jesus, and the Scripture records for us that um, he wanted to be seen by those that had spiritual discernment. He who has eyes to see, let him see. 
So Jesus didn't come make, bigging himself up and making all these claims about his life and his ministry. Why? Because he wanted people to perceive who he was. And those that had eyes to see, they began to see. And the irony is that even though he wasn't seeking fame, as he simply, out of the authority of his life, as he ministered and preached, he became amazingly famous very quickly. <laughs> uh, and uh, they were astonished. In verse 22, they were astonished of his, at, the, at the authority of his teaching. They were astonished that he had authority over unclean spirits. And everywhere, it says in verse 28, his fame spread everywhere throughout Galilee. The truth is, if there's power, if there's life, if there's ministry, you don't have to advertise because it gets advertised for you. That's the truth. And so that's how it was with Jesus. And we're going to read later. He goes then to Simon Peter's house, and he has authority over the sickness that is plaguing Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And with a word, he simply heals her and demonstrates again his authority over sickness. And all these things are demonstrations of the fact of what Jesus said. He said, the kingdom is near. I'm coming. I'm the king. The kingdom is near. And these are all demonstrations of his authority. And so he, doesn't, he demonstrates his authority in a way it doesn't need to be debated, it doesn't need to be reflected upon. It simply confronts people in a practical way and they, they can see there's a king before them and they have to respond to that king. And remember I told you that's one of the great themes of Mark. It shows us who Jesus is and the second correlating theme is what are we going to do with this Jesus that we are now understanding and seeing? That's the two major themes. And these people are confronted by Jesus. They see his teaching, they see the authority of his teaching, and it's like, well, what are you going to do with this Jesus? How are you going to respond? And so all throughout Mark, we see that people are constantly filled with mixture of wonder, awe, and fear at what he did and what he said. I also want to point you to this, that Jesus wasn't the only one at that time that was preaching and doing miracles. He wasn't the only one. We're going to look at that again this morning. What Mark constantly points us to when he talks about Jesus and the preaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, he repeatedly says what distinguishes Jesus from all the other preachers and workers of miracles are his authority. The authority of Jesus is what marks Jesus apart from all the others that were preaching and doing miracles. And it's interesting to me that even though Mark says that, it doesn't automatically produce repentance and faith in people. Do you notice that? I was just looking at the language. When, when the demons are confronted, they recognize Jesus immediately and they say, you are the Son of God. You are the, you are the Holy One. When people are healed, they say, some of them say thank you, some of them don't, and most of them just say, well, we think you're the Son of David. Not quite sure who, who you are, but thank you for healing us. It's very interesting to me. Sometimes people are more interested in healing than they are in salvation. But here we see something else. We see that the authority of Jesus disturbs people. <laughs> disturbs people. Here in their meeting, in their Sabbath meeting, in the synagogue, the nice orderly meeting, is a demonized man <laughs> who manifests. And he's so, his, his, his personality is so twisted and broken and damaged that the demon even speaks through him with his voice and cries out and, and causes disturbance in the meeting. And I was just wanting to um, chat a little bit with you this morning, because many, many times in the, in, in the Gospels, we are confronted with people that are demonized. And Jesus goes about setting people free that are under the power of demons. And so it's a very good question to ask, 
what did the ancient world believe in demons? Why did they so believe in demons, and where does that belief come from? And uh, I, I want to answer that question because we need to understand the context into which Jesus is ministering. All right? He's ministering into specific context. Now, for us as Christians, demons are simply fallen angels. If we read the whole of the Scripture... It teaches that a third of the angels fell with Lucifer. Lucifer was the worship leader. He was the the worship leader in heaven, wanted to take glory for himself. And so he was thrown out of heaven, and a third of the angels went with him. So there's a limited number of of demons, and uh, they are all now still. uh, They will be defeated when Jesus comes back, and they'll be thrown to the lake of the fire when, 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 um, when the devil is defeated. But that's a Christian understanding of what demons are. All right, and how they are, they are just as angels are messengers on God's behalf, demons are messengers for the devil, and they do his bidding. But that's not what the ancient world believed, and that's why I want to just speak a little bit around this. Some in the ancient world believed that demons were as old as creation itself, some believed that they were spirits of wicked people that had died, and they were still carrying on a malignant kind of evil work. But for most Jewish people, they connected demons with a story in Genesis 6. And if you want to read it for yourself, the first eight verses of Genesis 6, which says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took their wives at any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh and his days should be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, And afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And it goes on to speak about Noah and how God judged the world. And to Peter, Peter makes a reference to that story in verse 4 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. He says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, etc., etc. So Peter makes reference to that very same story of of these angels that had been cast out of heaven. But the Jewish tradition elaborated that a little bit differently, and it said this, that there were a number of angels that rebelled against God, and they came to earth because they were attracted by the beauty of women. And their names were Asiel and Shemachshai. These two, this is the Jewish tradition now. And one of them went back to heaven. The other one remained on earth. And out of his union with the woman on earth, demons were produced. And he fathered many demons here on earth with their children. And so the collective word in Jewish theology is mazakin, which means one who does harm. And so... The Jewish tradition t- sees demons as uh, malignant beings between God and men whose work is to do harm. And according to Jewish tradition, they were just, there were millions of them. There were demons everywhere. And so they believed also that demons could eat and drink and reproduce. And there were millions of them, and they dwelt in unclean places like tombs, uh, any place that didn't have running water. They lived in deserts, for example. And that's where the phrase, a howling desert, comes from, because they believed that the the demons howled in the desert at night. Uh, They were especially dangerous to travelers that traveled after dark. They were dangerous to women giving birth. They were dangerous to brides and bridegrooms, to children. Uh, There was a demon of blindness, a demon of leprosy, a demon of heart disease. The Jewish tradition taught that demons worked with things like snakes and bulls and donkeys and the mosquito even. Uh, male demons were called Shedem. Female demons were called Lilin. 
And we get uh, the English word Lilith from that word. That's why if you read a novel and a, uh, the lady is called Lilith, it's a clue to you that she's not a good lady in the story, all right? <laughs> and so um, this is something of the Drew- Jewish tradition, what they taught. Now, you might say for us, well, that's all very strange. And um, as a Christian, I don't believe that. And I-, I-, I would agree with you. But my point is simply this. Those that Jesus was ministering to, they believed that. That was their context. Many people were terrified because that's how they saw the world. And in fact, I read a, a very interesting article this week by a doctor who um, uh, did some research in terms of some s- skulls that they found in ancient cemeteries. And there was this thing that happened that, called trepanning, where they would drill a hole in the top of the person's head because they believed that if they drilled a hole in the top of the person's head, the demon would be released. This is how, this is how seriously the ancient world thought about demonic um, Power And we know from the way that the doctors have studied these skulls, that that happened while they were still alive. And that little disc that was taken out of the top top of the head was often worn around their neck as an amulet, as a good luck charm to ward off evil spirits. This is is scientific. You can go read it it for yourself. Also, I said to you there there were people that were preaching and casting out demons. That in the way that Jesus was while he was alive. And there were exorcists that did the same thing. Uh, in fact, in the Christian church by 340 AD, there was actually an order of exorcists that actually went around the church. But here's a very, very crucial difference, and I'd like you to see why this portion always points people to the authority of Jesus. Because here's, remember I mentioned Josephus last week? Here's a story that Josephus reports of a Jewish exorcist called Eleazar, who went before Vespasian, the emperor, to demonstrate his power. And now this is written in a historical document, and I'm quoting him now. He says uh, that uh, Eleazar put to the nose of the possessed man a ring which had under its seal one of the roots prescribed by Solomon. And then as the man smelt it, he drew the demon out through his nostrils. And when the man fell down, he told the demon never to come back into him speaking Solomon's name and reciting incantations which he had composed. And then, wishing to convince bystanders and to prove to them that he had power, Eleazar picked up a cup and a foot basin of water a little way off and commanded the demon, as it went out of the man, to overturn the cup and to make known to the spectators that he had indeed left the man. Okay, this is a Jewish exorcist. So this is how they worked. The point is, when Jesus prays for people, he doesn't need an incantation. He doesn't need to do weird stuff. With a word, he speaks, and they are set free. The authority is in Jesus. It's not in the thing that needs to be done. That's the difference. And so, there's no elaborate rite. There's no spell. There's no formula. There's no incantation. What astounds people is simply that Jesus speaks and people are set free. There's power in the name of Jesus. And even the, dem- the demons recognize that power. They cry out in verse 25, What do you want with us, Jesus? I know who you are, they say. You are the Holy One of Israel. And so Jesus silences them. He silences them and says, Be quiet. And I think he does that for a number of reasons, to show that he has authority, one. But secondly, because he knows his time has not yet fully come. He doesn't want people to know and if you, if, if you read further with the story of the leper, the leper disobeys Jesus. And what happens when he, he tells everyone what Jesus has done for him, 
opposition to Jesus suddenly starts increasing in an amazing way. And Jesus is trying to say, my time has not yet fully come. Don't tell anyone. All right? And there's further evidence of this thing of uh, people uh, casting out demons in Acts chapter 19. Remember the story, Acts 19 verse 11, when Paul is in Ephesus? It says this, God was doing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, in other words, Jews that went around casting out demons, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those that had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, <laughs> Paul I know, but who are you? This is what the demons say to these guys that are trying to invoke the name of Jesus. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And it says, the man in whom the evil spirit so leapt on them and overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is like, this is serious stuff. And it says, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on all of them, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those that had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, a vast sum of money in those days. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. My friends, you don't need any occult power in your life. You don't need horoscopes. You don't need fortune tellers. You don't need any of this stuff. You need the power of Jesus in your life. He is the one that breaks all of those things, simply with a word. So what is the source then of Jesus' authority? I was thinking about that thirdly this week. It's a good question to ask. Why did Jesus have such authority? Well, was it because he was simply the Son of God? Well, he was the Son of God, and amazing amount of authority flowed from that position because he was the Son of God. But we also saw a couple of weeks ago that he, as a man, got baptized and chose to be baptized and then received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you would think, Son of God, baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's all he needs. That's all he needs to do extraordinary things. But you know, even Jesus knew that the source of his power was not just in those things. Even Jesus needed to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, rising very early in the morning and while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus is our example. We need to pray if we're going to see power. We might be saved. We can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We can be flowing in the gifts of the Spirit. Even the Son of God, Jesus, realized that he needed time alone with his Father. He needed prayer because that was the source, ultimately, of his power. I want to put it to you with sadness in my heart, that the church in the 21st century is powerless because it's prayerless. We don't see the necessity to pray. We think we can do it all ourselves. We are clever enough, our technology is good enough that we don't need to pray. My friends, if we're going to see this church bless this community, you and I need, out of love for Christ, to be on our knees praying. And I'm speaking to myself. I'm not at you. Prayer is what's going to break powers and principalities and demon authority. Pray. 
And then, verse 29, you want to read it with me? So there's this very public miracle of Jesus demonstrating his power, and what is highlighted in that public miracle is Jesus' authority. Yeah, and that's what Mark says over and over and over again, the authority of Jesus, the word of Jesus, is what they are amazed at. Secondly, there's this private miracle. Look here, in verse 29, it says, Immediately they left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, the four band of four, go again, to Simon's mother-in-law where she lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left, and she began to serve them. I want to mention three little things out of this, and then we're going to pray together. Again, this is a demonstration of the power of the authority of the rule of the kingdom that Jesus had come to announce. And he was demonstrating it everywhere he went. And so here he demonstrates not only power over demonic powers, his authority over sickness as well. And um, it's a private miracle, like I said. Uh, According to Jewish tradition, the main Sabbath meal, the main meal of the day, came immediately after the synagogue meeting. And uh, that was in the sixth hour, which is 12 noon. So they would go to the synagogue at six six o'clock in the morning. They would have their meeting, and at 12 o'clock they would eat together. And so Jesus could have said, look, I've had a busy day. He could have said, I'm really tired, I need to rest. But even here, right now, he gives himself for other people. An amazing thing. Shows us something about the heart of Jesus. And uh, it also tells us a couple of other things about Jesus. He doesn't need a big audience to show his power. He doesn't need a massive congregation. And this is the wonderful thing about Jesus' ministry. There was a public ministry where he spoke to thousands and he demonstrated his power in great crowds. And there was also, at the same time, a private ministry for Jesus that he demonstrated with his friends. For you and I, it's the same, my friends. There's the public meeting where we preach and we demonstrate the power of God by the Holy Spirit. And there's also the private meeting where we have with our family and our friends and our life groups where we demonstrate the power of God in a small group. It's not one or the other. One is not better than the other. It's both and. And so here with his friends, a little circle of fishermen in a fisherman's cottage, he demonstrates the same power that he's demonstrated in front of a large crowd in a synagogue, and he was never too tired to help, although he might have been quite tired. And again, it points us to the uniqueness of how Jesus worked. I've already said to you that there were people that went around with incantations and spells trying to set people free from demonic power. And here again, Jesus doesn't need any of that. He just speaks and he lifts the woman's hand and she's healed. Now, I had a look that actually the Talmud has a thing that is, it lays down for when someone has a burning fever. The Talmud is, is part of, uh, you know, you had the law. The Talmud was called the oral tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what happened over a period of centuries is that the law was given by Moses, and then the experts in the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they interpreted that law, and they put further weight on the people by saying all sorts of other things that they added to the law, and that was written down in the Talmud, all right? The other thing was the Mishnah. The Talmud and the Mishnah were the extrapolation of the law that the experts in the law wrote down, and they put all that stuff on people as well. And so when Jesus makes reference to the law and the scribes and the Pharisees, he's talking not only about the law, he's also talking about the Talmud, about all the other stuff, and there were hundreds of things put on people about how they should live. And this is what the Talmud said. If someone had a burning fever, you were to take an iron 
and tied by a braid of hair to a thorn bush. And on successive days, you were to read over the person Exodus 3 verse 2, Exodus 3 verse 4, and Exodus 3 verse 5, and that is the the story of Moses and the burning bush. And then the person was to recite an incantation over the person that was sick, and they were supposed to be set free. That's what the Talmud said. That's what the Jewish scribes would have said should have happened. That's what the Jewish exorcists would have said would have happened. Jesus speaks a word and lifts the lady and she's healed. He does everything in an extraordinary way and that's why people are so amazed. They cannot believe that he doesn't need all the other stuff with a word he sets people free. And so the Greek word there is exousa, which means unique knowledge combined with unique power. The other word the New Testament uses is dunamis, but here it's exousa. Jesus had unique knowledge and unique power that set him apart from every other preacher and every other miracle worker. And that is what amazed people. And I'm nearly finished. Okay? Secondly, not only tells us about Jesus, this little story of him healing uh, Simon's mother, it tells us something about the disciples. They hadn't known Jesus very long, I don't think. They had seen him minister, they had seen him do amazing things. They had just started following him, but already they were trusting Jesus. Already they, there was an upset in Peter's home, someone was ill, and the most natural thing in the world for the disciples was to take the sick person to Jesus. Because they knew he could do something for uh, Tom Peter's mother-in-law. I want to ask you this morning, what's the most natural thing, the most natural response in your life when you have a problem? What's the first person you speak to? Who's the first person you go to? Is it Jesus? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it someone you want to gossip with? Who's the first person you go to? The disciples knew the first person they needed to go to was Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus wants to share your life. I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus wants to be the traveling companion of your life. He wants to go through your life with you. And I want to say to you, our family has a testimony where we have seen Jesus carry us through the last three three years with our son and with issues that we've had as we've led this church. Jesus has carried us. I am beginning to know him closer than a brother. And you know what? I don't care what anyone else thinks. I know Jesus. I'm beginning to know His Holy Spirit. I know His work in my life and His comfort. And when Helen and I have cried on our bed when we haven't understood what's going on, Jesus has been there with us. I want to encourage you. He wants to take pleasure in your life. He's concerned with the things that you're concerned with. He is a friend who's closer than a brother. You can discuss every detail with him. He shares your hopes, your joys, your dreams. He shares, he listens better than anyone else can listen. And I want to say to you, there is truth in that old hymn. Take everything to the Lord in prayer. I just want to ask you, is that your first port of call? I'm not accusing you, I'm just asking you, as I ask myself, where's your first port of call? What are, are, you, are you taking everything to the Lord in prayer? The disciples had learned that. What do you need to take to him today? We want to have a time of ministry just now. What do you need to bring to Jesus? Just say, Jesus, this thing's too heavy for me. Please, this burden, take it off me. This, this sickness I'm carrying, please heal me, or whatever it is. We're going to pray.
I'm going to ask the ministry team to come. We're going to pray. We're going to demonstrate and say, Jesus, we're putting our trust in you. Amen? And lastly, it tells us something about Peter's mother-in-law. And I'm finishing with this. It says simply, as soon as she's healed, as soon as she has physical strength, she gets up and she starts to serve them. Isn't that an amazing thing? As soon as she's renewed, as soon as she's healed herself, she starts to serve. I want to say to you, we are saved to serve. We are saved to serve God. We are saved to serve other people. Jesus helps us and fixes, sorry, fixes us up so that we can, with the same grace that we've received, the same restoration that we've received, we can take that same grace and be a comfort to others. That's what the Scripture says. So I want to ask you, are you serving? Are you giving yourself to the kingdom in some way? I'm not trying to prescribe to you how you must do that, but are you giving yourself in some area of your life for Jesus? He's freely loved us. Are we freely loving others? Not because we have to, not because anyone's telling you to, but simply because you love Him. Simply because you want to. We are all saved to serve. I want to encourage you to find a place where you can serve the King and serve His church and serve others and give yourself away. It truly is far better to give yourself away than to receive. Better to give than to receive. Now, I encourage you with that as we close. So, think about the authority of Jesus this week. Think about His power in your life. And that with a word, you can also pray for the sick and see them healed. Same authority has been given to us. He came to demonstrate that kingdom. The kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom was coming in Him. We too, as sons of the Most High God, are able to demonstrate that same authority through us. I want to encourage you. How's your prayer life? Think about that this week. I want to encourage you, set some time aside to pray, just like Jesus did. Early in the morning, late at night, on the train, I don't care where it is, set some time aside to pray and ask God that power can flow. And lastly, how can you serve someone else? How can you serve something of the kingdom? How can you serve God's church? I'm not telling you how you should do that, but where's the area that you can give yourself away? Amen.